read, so Psalm 73. A Psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Good morning, everyone. Um, Well, as you already know, today we come to um, another psalm, a psalm, a significant psalm, really, and one in uh, the group of psalms that we call Psalms of Lament. And last week, Luke, Luke took us through Psalm 42, the psalm where the writer's in deep distress and downcast finding it hard to see God um, through it all. Today we come to a psalm of a different kind of lament, a lament over the relative carefree and untroubled life of faithless pagans in contrast to the psalmist's own personal struggles and pain as one seeking to follow um, in faithfulness to God. Is it really worth to keep plugging on in your faith when the wicked seem to prosper and God's people suffer through tragedy, persecution or some other trouble. How do you feel when you do your best to love God, to serve him and to care for others, but there doesn't seem to be a lot coming back in return? You may suffer from ill health, 
experience the death of a loved one, suddenly you lose your job, you're trying to survive family, financially after a dozen interest rate rises. Your family maybe and your friends um, may be broken you don't want, and they don't want to know you and there may be many who just ridicule your Christian faith. Is it really worth it to keep plugging on in your faith? At the other end of the scale, what about all those who shun God, who want to do their own thing, treat people poorly, amass wealth as the, at the expense of others, the rich and the famous, where money can buy just about anything? Why is life good to them when they are really evil in God's eyes? but so much, not so much for me. This is the state of mind in which the psalmist found himself. And I've simply called the psalm the song of a slipping saint. His name is Asaph. Psalm 73 is one of the psalms among a number now, not written by King David himself, but by others. Asaph is mentioned several times in 1 Chronicles, in 1 and 2 Chronicles. He's a Levite and a chief of the group of Levites who are musicians appointed by King David to lead the praise and worship of God for his people, initially at the tabernacle and later at the temple that David's son Solomon built. You might say in today's terms, therefore, he was a mature believer and worship leader. And yet in Psalm 73 we find really a brutally honest account of how he almost lost his faith. You see, the real question which underlies his state of mind is this. Is God good to his people? Is God good to his people? Or is such an idea made foolish by what we see around us. In this psalm we see Asaph's honest confession as one of God's faithful. He found what he observed around him very troubling, so much so that his faith was almost lost. We can divide the psalm up into three parts. It begins with a straightforward declaration of faith in God's goodness, but then proceeds secondly to cast doubts about the truth of that declaration. And thirdly, however, unfortunately, Asaph comes to a new understanding uh, of God that takes place and leads to greater praise. So we begin then, first of all, with God's goodness stated in verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. The verse really is a statement of what he, is a conclusion he comes to by the end of the psalm, the conviction that he has. Um, but it's also an underlying, an indication of the underlying theme in the psalm, that it really has to do with God's goodness. He begins then by declaring that God is good to Israel, to his people, that is, to those who are pure in heart. Now the phrase pure in heart, by the addition of that word heart, refers not so much to moral purity in terms of one's actions, but to one's attitude to God, to one's allegiance, commitment and ultimate trust 
Of course, we know actions will always follow on from our attitudes. But actions and behaviour are not the primary focus of the phrase. In New Testament terms, we might say that the pure in heart are those who give their allegiance to Jesus and with God's help seek to follow him. So Asaph begins by stating the conclusion he will ultimately come to by the end of the psalm. But it took him some time to get there. Verse 2 begins with a but, a big but. And with great honesty he says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Hence, from God's goodness stated, he moves quickly to God's goodness question. From verse 3 right through to verse 16, Asaph relates the reasons behind his questioning of God's goodness to his people. But overall, they're summarised in verse 3, really. His questions, his doubts, etc., they arose from the assessment of his own circumstances when compared to the prosperity of the wicked. In verse 3 he says, For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, first of all, we ought to note that here the term wicked is a much broader term in the Psalms than the way we might use the term. For us it often means somebody particularly evil. But in the Psalms it refers to the great number of people who are faceless and arrogant in their ignorance and rejection of God. Much broader. As Asaph observed the relative ease, so it seemed to many around him, envy overtook him. Envy arising particularly from the fact that those who prospered gave no thought to God at all. And if we're honest, I don't think any of us at one time or another have not been envious of others. We see for whom life seems to be so much easier than what we might be going through at the time. And sometimes envy can arise just over everyday things. Many years ago, not long after we came to Adelaide and we were struggling financially with a new home to make ends meet, one night we were at the dinner table with, um, and Meredith and I found out that our two eldest children, Tammy and Stephanie, uh, were being teased in year six at school about their shoes. A lack of a name brand like the rest of the kids. I'm sure many of you know what I'm talking about. They found it unpleasant and initially envied those kids and the money they had. I'll tell you a little bit more about that conversation later. It's not hard to feel envious of others and what they have, their money, their power, self-fulfilment or the buzzword today, well-being, particularly when life is not so good for us. Asaph goes on to list to a list of things he envies about the wicked. In verses 4 and 5, they have no struggles, life is good, no ailments, not plagued by human ills, is strong and healthy. 
This contrasts, of course, with his own situation in verse 14. Daily affliction is the way he calls it. In verses 6 and 7 he refers to the pride of the wicked. They wield their power how they wish, often with violence. I could certainly think of one ex-president of the US at the moment seeking election again, who to quote verse 6, exhibits pride as his necklace. And then in verses 8 to 12, the wicked are those who scoff at people like him and even at God, arrogantly trivialising any involvement or concern that God might have for the human predicament. They just go on amassing wealth. Notice that Asaph here is not talking about people we might classify as particularly wicked. Yes, some people wield power in a violent way, but he is really just complaining about the lot of the faithless, those who ignore God and carry on in some sort of blissful and arrogant ignorance. Like the neighbour or work colleague for whom life is good, he has all he wants and more. Maybe he even brags about it and at times scoffs at you for your Christian faith. You look at your own lot. Life is hard at present. You may be grieving over some tragedy, experiencing a chronic illness and finding it hard to make ends meet. And just even for a fleeting moment, you look at the lot of others you know for whom life is good and a thought arises as it does in verse 13, praise it, surely in vain. I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. Is my faith in God worth it? And while Asaph survives this sort of threat to his faith, sadly I've known a number of people who have not and given up the faith. And I suspect some of you might know some people too. Fortunately for Asaph, being it seems probably a leader in the community, at this stage it was only his thoughts and emotions with which he was struggling. He indicates in verse 15 that he had not yet spoken publicly in this way, which as a leader would have been a betrayal of God's people. Something, however, happened that turned and changed everything for him. The psalm turns from God's goodness questioned to God's goodness known and cherished. In verses 16 and 17 we read, When I tried to understand this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Now we're not sure here whether Asaph's reference is meant to be taken literally in other words, referring to the actual temple built by Solomon or simply talking about his meeting with God in some way or even possibly as he led music and the praise of his people. For us today, with the completed word of God available to us, uh, a regular reading of God's revelation to us would at least be one of the main means through which God also changes our perspective. 
Whatever entering the sanctuary specifically meant for Asaph, his focus changed dramatically. Once he took his focus away from being preoccupied with everyone else and turned toward God, things changed. Asaph recognised two very important differences between the lot of the pure in heart and the wicked that made him realise what a fool, what a fool he'd been to envy the life of the wicked and faceless. The first difference was a difference in final destiny. Once he entered the sanctuary of God, he says he understood in verse 17 that final destiny of the wicked. He goes on to describe this destiny in verses 18 to 20 and verse 27. Let me read them. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. How like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. And then verse 27, those who are far from you will perish. You will destroy all who are unfaithful to you. Asaph realised that the apparent prosperity of the wicked, of which he has been so envious, is so short-lived. Whatever they have now is all they have. Prosperity now is so fleeting, whether it be wealth or health or enjoyment of life, in the end it is so short. And surely the frailty of material wealth and well-being has been brought into sharp focus for us the last few years with the pandemic of COVID-19. Lives and lifestyles have been shattered in almost an instant. It's like a dream, says the writer. You wake up and it's gone. And all you face is the judgment of God. About a month ago, you might uh, know some of this, Malcolm Wilson, a convicted pedophile, serving a 20-year term um, in jail, contracted terminal cancer and requested access to new assisted dying legislation. There was a bit of a public outcry from the victims of the abuse because they thought he deserved to suffer much more for what he had done. It was as if he was getting away with it from suffering the circumstances, the consequences of what he had done. But this psalm reminds us, friends, that no one escapes the justice and judgment of God. If your sins and unfaithfulness to God do not find you out in this life, they certainly will in the next. As Hebrews 9.27 makes clear, human destiny is to die once and after that to face judgment. And as verse 27 states, all who are unfaithful to God will perish. All, every single one. From a New Testament perspective, that means everyone who does not belong to Jesus, so 
let me say that if you are here today and still looking into the claims of Jesus and whether you will turn in repentance to follow him, I urge you to continue to do so because the decision you make about him will be the most important of your life. For those who are faithful, however, the pure in heart, those who follow Jesus, the promise is one of eternal bliss, the hope of glory. For the faithful, this short life will in fact turn into a glorious eternity. In verse 24 he says, You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. Now we're not quite sure what the writer himself, what Asaph would have thought by the term glory because there was no really developed sense of the afterlife in the Old Testament until we get near the end. But the reference to afterward clearly indicates a confidence in some way to the future security of God's people. But for us, for us, the truth that Asaph sort of hinted at is clear. The hope of glory has been revealed through the coming of God's Son, Jesus Christ. God gave up his own Son to die on our behalf for our sins and to rise to new life at the right hand of God for eternity as the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. God's people, those who trust in Jesus and seek to follow his teaching are guaranteed an eternal world, a world that Revelation 21 describes as one where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain, an eternal world of glory. In our present world, fallen, corrupt and broken as it is, trouble and suffering of one kind or another is a lot of many, faithful and unfaithful alike. But when it comes to destiny, there simply is no comparison. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. This is the first and most important thing Asaph had come to realise when he focused on God and what it meant to be one of his people compared to the faithless all around him. Really, he'd been an absolute idiot to think otherwise. Just stupid and foolish. In verses 21 and 22 he says, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. How foolish to be envious of the prosperity of anyone in this life who does not know Jesus. Their end is only judgment and destruction. But those who belong to Jesus have a guaranteed eternal glory waiting for them. God is indeed good to his people. And yet the psalmist refers to much more than that. He not only realises the magnitude of difference in his destiny compared with the wicked, he realises that his relationship to God that he enjoys now daily is so much more precious than those things he'd envied before. You know, some unbelievers have labelled the hope of eternity just as 
pie in the sky when you die. I don't know whether you've heard that phrase or not before, but I have plenty of times. And that's the way they see. That's all there is in Christian faith. But nothing could be further from the truth. There is a second difference for the life of the wicked, for difference from the life of the wicked for God's people that spans the whole of his life. Asaph knows it well. If first of all there's a massive difference when it comes to final destiny of God's people, there is also a great difference in daily experience. How easy it is, my friends, when things are tough, when tragedy strikes, when others ridicule your Christian faith, to totally underestimate what we now have in having a relationship with the living God who is the sovereign God of the whole universe. Asaph lays this out and expresses this in verses 23 to 26. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward you take me into glory. Whom am I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See the difference in daily experience that God's faithful people know is his continual presence, guidance and strength. God is always with us. As Jesus said to his disciples, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. And we know God so much more intimately really than Asaph did because God has given every believer his Holy Spirit, the seal of our relationship with him and a deposit that guarantees the glory to come according to Ephesians chapter 1. Asaph is guided by God's counsel. We have the wonder of the completed word of God from the creator and sustainer of the universe. We know the full story of God's plans. We know why the world is the way it is. I've been a Christian for a long time now, almost 50 years. And I can tell you that one of the greatest things about being a Christian, it seems to me, is simply knowing the truth about life. The real meaning of life and the certainty of the future. And this relationship is not just one way, as if God does all the relating and we do all the receiving. The relationship is real. God is with us. It really is utterly profound. We pray because he is with us wants to hear from us, answers our prayers in a way best for us and we joyfully praise him as we're doing today in word and song, individually and corporately as an expression of that relationship. It's too many times to count. I've seen my own prayers and the prayers of others answered in ways I can only marvel at. How good it is, as Asaph says in verse 28, to be near God. 
how good indeed. What benefit, prosperity, well-being in this life can replace that? Earlier I told you about the time around the dinner table we talked as a family uh, with Sammy and Stephanie being teased about the lack of branded name shoes. But as we talked it became clear that what we shared um, of our relationship to God and love for one another was so much more than their classmates had at school. Under the surface of that teasing, under the surface of that prosperity, most of their classmates had broken homes. There was much division, much hurt, much loneliness. It still hurt, of course, to be teased and ridiculed. That's not fun at any time. But there was no more envy. Because we were so much better off than their classmates ever knew. Asaph came to the realisation that I hope all listening today come to and already know. The truly rich person is not the one who possesses wealth, health and happiness, but the one who knows God and has come to know his wonderful goodness in relationship to him. As one writer says, there can be no greater treasure than covenantal relationship with the God who is near and involved in the lives of human beings. Well, as I get older, my flesh certainly is failing and will continue to do so. You know, I've never been more sure of God's goodness to his people. Despite going through some pretty tough times, really, for us in recent years, these words are more true. More real. More precious today than anything else I could possess. And I hope also you know that. What we have, I think, as those who belong to Jesus is truly extraordinary. We need to remind each other of that because the media will continue to tell us the very opposite. That is why Asaph ends, as he does, notice, with the words of verse 28, I will tell of your deeds. Next time you get the opportunity to share something of your Christian faith, with others, just tell people how good God is. How great it is 
to be a Christian. To know the future with certainty. To know the love and support of this family of God's people. And to know the joy, peace, forgiveness and freedom that comes from a relationship with God who is always near and always will be until the end of the age. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we live in a world We live in a very wealthy part of the world where many things are put before us as the best things in life. Help us to realise how untrue that is. Help us to remind one another all the time of the wonder of what you've done for us, of your incredible goodness to your people, not only in terms of our final destiny, but each day of our lives as we live with you. And Father, help us to have such a realisation of this, that, that that is what oozes out of us when we talk about the Lord Jesus to others. And we ask it in his name. Amen.